Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. It's a good start. We got a clap and a half in the entire 9 a.m. service, so you guys are already killing it in my favorite crowd of the day. Um, I'm just kidding. So I have a couple friends that are Dallas Cowboys fans, and if you're not a sports fan, I apologize, and the fact that you just yelled out, it's not going to end well for you when I finish this story. (laughs) Um, But I have several uh, Dallas Cowboys fans, and um, as evidenced by the annoying cheers just now, they are the most obnoxious people in the world. I love you wherever that came from, but so obnoxious. And thank you for setting that up, actually. Whoever you are, thank you. And then my niece married a Dallas Cowboys fan, and just not knowing, you know, um, what they're marrying into. And so he, he is, I'll just say this for him, I think he's serving right now, so you won't hear this, you probably won't podcast it, but he he is less annoying, but he made the mistake um, over time of trying to indoctrinate um, my two older boys specifically into being Cowboys fans, and he did it really shady, and he would buy them stuff and buy them jersey. And he's a huge Dak Prescott fan. And I just couldn't, and I mean this in like a sports way. So like, if you're a sportsman act, you get this. So when you say you can't stand people, it's in the context of sports. I mean, you know, Jesus loves them. I like, I love them. But in terms of sports context, I could not stand Dak Prescott. Did not like Cowboys. Several annoying, fan, um, you know, friends of mine fans. And then my niece's husband came in trying to, you know, give them things. And then I would find my boys playing in the backyard and like, oh, we're going to be Dak Prescott. Like, no, 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 no. I think Joshua said in the Old Testament, as for me and my house, we will be Buccaneers fans, all right? Your dad was a Buccaneers fan. Your grandfather, you're like, oh, should they get a choice? No, they don't get a choice. It's multi-generational. They were born into it. And so, um, Anyway, so after a while, I just tell him to stop, and um, he doesn't come around anymore. But uh, the, bi- the big thing, though, is I just could not specifically Dak Prescott, just, and which made that playoff loss even worse if you know people, because it's like, mm. um, But I read a Sports Illustrated article about Dak Prescott, and I, I almost hated it because I got done with the article, and I was like, ah, oh, he is such a good dude. Like, if you, his story, some of the stuff he's been through, he's like, such a good guy. And... Um, where I found myself almost rooting for him, and I shouldn't even say that in public, and I would never tell um, my niece's husband this, but I was like, man, he, but my friends just ruined him. Like he, they ruined like the fact he's a good guy just because of their obnoxious behavior. Like they just branded him for life. So even if I wanted to like him, I couldn't like him. And so my point in all of that story that went way too long is this, is that for some of you, as we've said now for a couple weeks in this series, like your version of Christianity, your brand of Christianity or Christians that you've experienced is possible, I don't know, it's possible it looks nothing like Jesus. It's possible that somebody has branded Jesus and the message of Jesus for you, and the two things don't line up. And I mean, for a lot of us, if you were to look and get your ideas about Jesus from other followers, which can be rough, from um, causes 
in his name where somebody takes a Bible verse out of context, usually from the Old Testament, and then slaps Jesus' name on it. Um, or from you know, denominations that you grew up in, or even, even like the limited understanding of your own circumstances where you're trying to connect the dots, then it's possible, I'm just saying, that, that the conclusions that you've drawn might not actually look anything like Jesus. Like you've actually never been introduced to what Jesus is offering. Whether you're here today, listening on radio, you're watching, you're podcasting, because you, here's what I think all of us know, whether you're religious or not, is that you can take any label any cause or any category, and you can justify just about anything in Jesus' name, right? And everybody thinks they're right, and everybody's got a Bible verse, and it's why, as you look historically, there have been Christians on every side of every issue, um, every, you know, every war, every political movement, I mean, all over the place, and they use the same verses to justify things that Jesus would never want anything to do with. And so it's just possible that the brand of Christianity that you've been exposed to or Jesus just doesn't look like Jesus. It's why you even have some people in your life that's like right now it's just hard to be around them because they've bought into this brand of, of Christianity that just doesn't match up at all. And so for three weeks now, it's why we've said this, that I don't even know if Christian's the best term. In fact, in the New Testament, you see it used three times as a derogatory term toward people denoting loyalty to Jesus in the first century by outsiders. But 2,000 years later, it can mean anything but loyalty to Jesus. It can mean everything but loyalty to Jesus. And so it's why Jesus and his followers actually were branded with this, what I think is a better title, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Because as we've said, you can hide behind the term Christian and get away with all kinds of stuff. You start narrowing in on following Jesus being a disciple of Jesus, isn't it true, man, the stuff you can get away with, that list starts to narrow? It starts to get terrifyingly clear, almost maybe a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus couldn't have been more clear when he was talking to Jesus' followers and he gave this command, and some of you know this really well, others of you, you know, you probably know it well too, even if you never grew up around the church, by this. He's with his guys hours before his crucifixion. Everybody's gonna know that you're my disciples or followers if you love one another, Easy to understand, difficult to do the way that Jesus would model it because this is what the next statement is what separates this from every other movement, every other religion. This is what makes Jesus different. Love one another, verse 36, as I have loved you. And then within hours, he would put on a demonstration that would take their breath away because it would take his breath away. And he would give up his life for the world. And he would say to everybody who would come behind, that's how I want you to love. This is the epicenter of my movement. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. This is the defining characteristic for my new movement. And isn't it true that for some of you, the things that you actually resist about Christianity, we should have resisted about Christianity. It was never a part of Jesus' plan. And he has invited us into something that looks like this. This is at the epicenter of the whole thing. So today, in a few minutes, I wanna look at how that specifically applies in one area. And he, he, as I was studying for this, here's what I thought. I shouldn't even have to do this message. I should have been able to leave this out and then I could have capped this series at five and then we'd move on to the next series. But I have to talk about it. As, as no brainer as this is, somehow in our culture and really for generations, even though there's no ambiguity in the New Testament, this has been lost. We have forgotten this. And basically it's the tension of how Jesus followers, people who've committed their lives to following Jesus, how they should treat people who are not Jesus followers. That shouldn't require a whole message, but it does. And it is so clear 
in the New Testament. In fact, I would just say this. If you're not a Jesus follower and you're here today and you're investigating, I say this all the time, you're investigating, you've got questions, you don't even know if you like any of this, but you're here, you're listening, you're watching. I have so much respect for you. Anybody that would genuinely investigate or even place themselves here with what maybe you've seen is just, it's a huge step. So I just wanna say, if you're not a Jesus follower, not a Christian, you might love this message. This is a great day to be here, great day to tune in online. Like this may be your favorite message of all time because what I'm about to talk about is potentially a lot of what you've experienced. But here's my other heads up. And I gave you this at week one of the series. If you are a Jesus follower like me and you follow Jesus for a long time, so we're together, I'm with you. This message might be a tad uncomfortable. In fact, I said that in the first service and I had several friends come up to me and like, that was a tad uncomfortable. And I was like, well, I gave you a warning, um, you know, at the top of the message so you couldn't get mad about it. Because, and maybe specifically for some of us, if we bought into the brand of Christianity that causes us to filter our faith through the lens of our politics on whatever side we're on, this might be uncomfortable. But Jesus could not have been clear about his brand of the Jesus movement and what he wanted, and before he was about to exit planet Earth, like he had died, we believe in history, rose from the dead, and then he gathered his followers to be like, hey, I'm gonna start a brand new movement, and it's gonna be based on what I said in the upper room. Love other people the way I loved you, go. And I'm gonna give you whatever you need. And then here's what I want to be your marching orders or specific instructions in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and do what? Mm, we can do better. Therefore, go and what? Make disciples, basically. Just invite other people to follow Jesus, which I get in a post-Christian culture, even that is offensive, but not the way that Jesus was telling them, which I'll get to in a second. Go make disciples, invite people to be followers of Jesus, of all nations, all ethnicities, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and the verse 20 and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And how were Jesus' commandments summarized? Love God. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. And surely with this new movement and these people who come around this idea, I'm gonna be with you always to the very end of the age. And if you know history for the first 300 years, they killed it in a good way. And they were killed for killing it. Like they moved and loved and went in and, and people were drawn to them and then Over time, about 300 years in, Christianity, you maybe know this, became the official religion of Rome. And suddenly, for the first time in its history, Christians and the church had power. And in that moment, I'm telling you, in that moment, the church, Christianity, went backwards. Because anytime the Christian movement or the Jesus movement has leveraged anything other than love, it's been a train wreck. Anytime the church or Christianity in any culture, any generation, any nation has decided to leverage power and influence over love, they have always gone backwards. This was never to be a movement. Jesus never intended this movement to be about power and about influence. I mean, Jesus came and could have done whatever he wanted during his three years of ministry. He could have changed whatever he wanted to change. He could have upended whatever he wanted to upend. And his life ended up with him willfully submitting his life to Roman crucifixion. This is different. The church was never to have that be the the mechanisms or the thing that they leverage in the culture. So over time, the church or Christians began reading this verse this way. Therefore, go and impose my teaching and my values and my worldview on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't obey everything that I've commanded you. And the thing is, I commanded you 
I didn't command everybody else. And yet somehow that began to be the brand of Christianity. And come on, you guys, I think probably know this, inviting people to become followers of Jesus is very different than imposing Jesus values and standards on people who never submitted their life to Jesus values and standards. Those are two very different things. And come on, the West was one. The world was one, no overstatement, study history, because they understood that they had been called to win the West, to win the world and not win a culture war, to win the hearts of people, to model the love and the grace of Jesus that they saw on display on planet earth. And so it's no surprise when Paul comes along, Paul is the guy that hated Christians, wanted to kill them, becomes one, has this dramatic you know, turn of events where he interviews people who are with Jesus, believes that he rose from the dead, and this guy's highly educated in the first century. And so he becomes the central figure in actually moving the Jesus movement forward. And Paul decides, partly because of God's call, that he's gonna go to non-Jewish people in the first century and basically the non-Jewish people were all of those who were outside of the religious system. Because if you weren't a Jew and didn't inherit this, you couldn't go to the temple, you weren't a part of the deal. And so Paul's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the rest of the world. And I'm gonna go to these people, and this is interesting to me, who are not really interested. Um, don't hold any of my values. Don't think the way that I think. I'm, there's a lot that's gonna have to be de- deconstructed. But I'm gonna go with the idea of inviting them to become followers of Jesus. And now listen to this, listen to what Paul's approach was in the first century. He wrote it to a group of Christians in Corinth and he said this, though I am free, this is Paul's words, and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Meaning I don't leverage power, I don't impose my standards, I'm not trying to legislate this on the rest of the world. In fact, I lay down my life for the sake of other people, what I deserve for the sake of other people. To win as many as possible. And so the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Like depending on who I'm with and who I'm connecting with, I'm not changing my values, but I'm recognizing that I'm like an ambassador of Jesus. And to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to, and what's the word? So one more time, so as to what? Win those under the law. Now, you know, like just in terms of life, have you ever won a contract? I mean, you probably didn't do it by threatening, let's get, get put in jail later, a leveraging, imposing. Like you, you know how to win a contract. You know how to win somebody's heart. You know about how to win somebody over in relationship. Like this isn't a God thing. This is just in life. Like we know what this looks like. And yet somewhere along the way, we had this idea as the Christian movement, the church, when we got power about 300 years in, that leveraging and threatening and imposing was a better option. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what I did. And that's not what first century followers of Jesus did. A group of people that didn't even have the option. They didn't have any leverage. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any influence. All they had was this command that Jesus had given them that was to move the mission forward. And they opted for win. They opted for, we are gonna be so attractive with the message of Jesus and how we treat people and how we love our enemy and what we do in the culture that people are gonna be drawn to this message. And they, and this is a crazy idea, they encouraged and and expected Jesus followers to act like Jesus followers. They expected Jesus followers to love like Jesus. They didn't expect people who weren't Jesus followers to act like Jesus followers. And I'm just telling you, In our 
moment culturally. So I wanted to do this message. The church, just big language. I'm not talking about you necessarily, just as a whole. We have unnecessarily put ourselves at odds with culture and it should not be that way. In fact, when Jesus comes along, he makes this so clear and so does Paul who later even clarifies further and they basically answer the question of the tension. Okay, Jesus followers, here's what I want you to do. Encourage each other to love like Jesus and then all the people who are not Jesus followers should go without saying, but we're gonna say it anyway. Don't expect them to act like Jesus followers. Don't you dare impose your values on them. And so Jesus, in this one talk I wanna look at, he spends a bunch of time just encouraging, if you're a Jesus follower, you, you, to go, man, with everything in me, I just wanna encourage you to, to live this life the way that I've called you to, to love you, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. And then at the very end, but it's in kind of terms that we easily miss it, in fact, we misinterpret it, he makes very clear the distinction between us, followers of Jesus, and all the rest of the world, all the rest of the culture. And then... In case we weren't sure, Paul has a similar talk with Christians in Corinth. At the very end, he kind of drops the mic and makes it so clear that we should never miss it. So here's what Paul says about this whole dynamic. He kind of sets this up, encourages Jesus' followers, makes his point, and then Paul clarifies in Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So it's another one of those times he's got a bunch of people around him, he's teaching. And they come and ask the question of Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is like, the reason you're asking that question is because you don't even understand what I came to bring, planet Earth. You don't even understand my brand new movement because in my movement, unlike Rome, the greatest are gonna be the least. The least are gonna be the greatest. In fact, no longer is the defining value or characteristic gonna be power, it's gonna be humility. And then he makes his point and emphasizes it and gives a little demonstration, verse two, and he called a little child so that he could kind of give them an example and place the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Specifically talking about God's kingdom ethics and how he wants us to live because he's gonna make clear in a few moments, he's talking to Jesus followers. So if you're not, you can just kind of sit back and point your finger and whatever because Jesus isn't talking to anybody who hasn't decided to actually follow Jesus. And in this point right here, become like little children, the church often has misinterpreted that to go, well, just be naive and um, intellectually dishonest and just have faith and follow Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the only prerequisite to follow Jesus is humility. Don't be intellectually dishonest. Don't throw away your mind. This is actually an intellectually robust faith. If anybody told you otherwise, they got it wrong. But if you're ever gonna follow God, you at least have the humility to understand you can't do it on your own and you need God. And so he says, become like little children. And then in verse six, anyone kind of sets up his uncomfortable command. Who causes one of these little ones? Basically, those who believe in me, followers, to stumble, basically to fall down, to get tripped up, to go off the rails because of your lack of love, because of my lack of love, it would, and I, I love, this is Jesus, by the way, I didn't write this. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea, which sounds a little bit like an episode of Ozark or The Sopranos. But here, like, just clue you in. The, the scripture is literature. And so there's parts of it that are literal. There's parts of it that's hyperbole. Jesus is 
obviously using hyperbole to make a point that this is a big deal. And then he says this, verse seven, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Meaning there's enough stuff in life that you can't control, right? Like there's unavoidable like regret and chaos that you had nothing to do with. Like that's just coming. That's a part of a world, we believe, that's infested and broken with sin. But then he says this, Such things have to come, but woe to the person through whom they come, talking to Jesus' follower. Meaning, don't intentionally be somebody else's mistake. Don't intentionally be somebody else's regret. As I've said to us many times, don't maybe unintentionally become a story in somebody's future counseling session. If you're a follower of Jesus, Because you can't do any of those things and love well the way that Jesus has called you to love well. And so then he's he's talking about circumstances and other people and culture. And now he talks about us. And again, specifically to Jesus, he says this, verse eight. I love when Jesus wants to make a point that's really extreme. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and just throw it away. Which again, and I feel like there's certain sex of Christianity that somebody needs to tell them. That's not literal. But what he is saying is there is stuff. And again, I I think we just kind of, there's stuff that tends to hold us back. There's stuff that, that can sabotage our future and our own dreams and our own desires for our life. And sometimes when you are in a place of unhealth in any area of your life, incremental changes will not move you toward health. Only extreme changes will move you toward health. Like there's certain moments where you're just not gonna take a baby step into where you need to get to go. That things are so bad, you need to get it into the open. You need to tell somebody, you need to get into counseling. You need to get rid of it. You need to sell it. I mean, you need, you need to do whatever you've got to do. And Jesus in this moment is going, listen, because I love you and I don't want anything to get in the way of what you want for you. And I don't want anything to get in the way of what God wants to do in the lives of the people around you because I've called you to love the way that, that I've loved you. And here's the reality. A lot of times when we are holding on to something, we are unavailable to someone. The stuff that holds us back, the sin that holds us back, the dysfunction that we keep trying to hide, it's never localized, is it? It's never contained. It always seeps into other relationships in our life. And so Jesus is like, do whatever you gotta do. Like whatever is really holding you back right now, get rid of it. It's better for you to enter life lamed and crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire, which he's gonna define in a second. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. I'd prefer not to. But he's like, listen, if there's anything in your life, follower of Jesus, that's causing you to go off course, that's creating regret, that's moving you toward a destination you don't wanna end up at. Jesus is like, get rid of it. Do whatever you've gotta do. Like head this off now before you go further down this road. And I'm using extreme language for a reason because that's how much I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And if anybody has been a parent, they have experienced a similar dynamic with their kids. I don't want you to end up to a place that it's gonna hurt you and hurt other people. And listen, it's a big deal, Jesus would say, because you're a big deal. And it's a big deal because the people around you are a big deal. And I don't want that for your life. And then he says this in Matthew 18, nine, it is better to enter life without one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fire of Gehenna. 
And here's why this is important, because the eternal fire, we generally think, oh, that's hell. It's not. He's talking to Jesus followers. But what you have to understand is the moment you begin to follow Jesus, this is coming up in a later series, eternal life starts in that moment. And what you don't want to have happen is eternal life that's going to go beyond this life into heaven, and it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be exactly what God planned. But in that, you know, kind of time and space of eternal life, you don't want to be this part of that eternal life to be hell on earth. And in the Gehenna was basically the south of Jerusalem, where the culture was so crazy that they would worship these idols and they would take their children and they would sacrifice them to the God of Molech, lowercase g. And this fire of Gehenna was kind of the symbol of just absolute and utter chaos. And the point that Jesus is making to Jesus followers is whatever's holding you back, whatever is sabotaging your relationships, whatever is hurting the future you, you need to do whatever you can to throw it off or throw it away before your life is thrown into chaos. Because some of us have experienced when your life is thrown into chaos, your life can become hell on earth. And come on, we we have enough. I mean, all of us in this room, let's just be honest in church for a second. We have at least some experiences we can look back and go, I've stumbled and now if I could go back and rewind some things, I wish I could unmeet some people. I wish I could unanswer some DMs. I wish I could not take that first drink. I wish I would have could go back to that moment when I made that decision and I thought it was a decision. I had no idea it was a destination. And it became a catalyst in my life for me ending up in a place that I didn't want to be. And Jesus is like, that's my point. And then before he kind of ends this out, he refers to the parable from last week and he shifts gears to say, okay, here's why it's personal. So what do you think? And he referenced this parable that we looked at. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, stumbles, gets lost, loses their way, looking in the mirror going, I don't even recognize this person. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about the one sheep than the 99 that didn't wander off. And as I said last week, it's, you can put this dynamic or compare it to anything. Like if I lose a kid, I'm not cheering because I still have three left. Your heart is toward what is disconnected and in the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these should perish. A literal Greek that should be lost, disconnected, wandering aimlessly from God and God loves you enough that through Jesus, he's not gonna force his will or force his way on you, but make no mistake, he will run you down as far as he can where you finally say, no more, I don't want you because that's how much he loves you and that's how much he loves the people around you. Like a perfect, perfect parent, ultimately a perfect heavenly father. And so then Jesus finishes and there is, you know, a bunch of people are listening to him and they're like, that was amazing. That was a great talk. We'll see you later, Jesus. Thanks for that. We're gonna put that into practice and we'll apply that. And Jesus is like, ah, not so fast. I'm not done. Hang on, sit down. If someone you love, a Jesus follower, is off the rails, gets lost, stumbles. Then he says this, verse 15, if your brother or your sister, which means not biological, this is Jesus followers, this is the body of Christ. If your brother or sister sins, And maybe you don't call it sin, but just that thing where you haven't even met your own standards for your own life. Go and point out their fault, what Jesus, just between the two of you. And here's the thing, like I know that right there, some of you are like, then that's the whole problem right there. 
That has been my entire religious experience, my entire Christian experience, is a bunch of moral police walking around pointing out all of my faults. Like that was the whole reason I left the church. So let me kind of contextualize what Jesus is saying. And then you see this all throughout the New Testament. This is not a blanket statement to like anybody who's a Jesus follower has the right to just point out, you know, anybody who is off the rails. And we all know those people. This is in the context of, I mean, we're talking tops. Two, three people, two people within the context of deep relationship and deep trust and you don't even have to be religious to understand this dynamic of what Jesus is trying to convey. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've got a really close friend, this is not just some random person you go to church with and you see them down the aisle and you're like, I should address. This is deep relationship and it's an addiction. It's a decision that's leading them to a really bad place. They're starting to take some steps. They're angry. You can see it in their social media posts and it's starting to affect the way they treat their kids. And you're close enough and have enough trust in your friend to go, man, we're, we're followers of Jesus. We've been called to something. I don't think this is gonna end well for you. Like even if you're not a Jesus follower, hopefully you've had a good enough friend in your life to do that. I've had several of those friends where, and I'm talking two or three people, this is not a wide circle. This is, they know me, I have a lot of trust, I believe them, I, I, if they come at me, I don't think there's any self-righteousness. It's, hey, Brian, you are off the rails in this area. I just wanna love you enough to let you know. Like, it's one of the most loving things that people can do. But here's what this passage is not talking about. This is Jesus followers within the context of, this is why community is so important. Getting into tighter circles is important because maybe God's gonna produce one or two of those relationships in your life that may end up preserving you in some ways. But this is not the moral police brand of Christianity that thinks that they have the right to just walk around to anybody, anywhere and point out what, and generally they are self-righteous and they lack self-awareness. And so to quote another Jesus teaching, they're walking around with a freaking two by four coming out of their eye, pointing out the specks in everybody else's eye. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This is, deep. in fact, I would just say it this way and hopefully you'll receive this the way I mean it. Um, I, I have a couple people that I'm so thankful have kept me accountable around loving my kids and loving my wife and, and, and loving the way Jesus has called me to. But if I don't know you, I probably don't want to hear from you. Amen. Right? And the same is true of you. And thank you for the one amen. Uh, I appreciate that. Because if I don't have trust with you, relationship, th this was never supposed to be this just open thing. Like you just point out whatever with it. This is about the Jesus followers and Jesus movement. I just wanna make this point. Can you imagine if we did this in culture as followers of Jesus? That we got into deep community and we had really close, deep relationship with the people we trust so that every once in a while in the Jesus movement, people could go, hey, we're friends. We've been friends for a long time. You're a follower of Jesus. Why the heck are you posting that? Why the heck are you talking to people that way? Why don't you love? What's going on with your family? I don't think this decision is gonna end well. And loves them enough to not in condescension or self-righteousness to go, I just don't think this is gonna end great. And they would love each other enough to hold Jesus followers accountable to love and then stop pointing their finger and judging and imposing Jesus standards on the rest of the world and culture among people who never signed up to follow Jesus. What if we just did that? That would change the world. Amen. And so Jesus is like, and if they listen to you, you've won them over talking about this deep friend relationship, fellow follower of Jesus, because they'll, maybe you have this, they'll thank you forever. You'll be a part of their story forever. You've got some people, maybe, they're a part of your story forever. 
But if they don't listen, he goes on to make the point, do, do whatever you gotta do. You gotta stage an intervention, stage an intervention. If there's an addiction, if there's a decision that's leading them to a place where in a decade they're gonna wake up and go, what, who am I? And why am I here? And why did I treat them that way? Because sin always comes with a price tag. Sin leads to death. Paul talks about it in Romans. Sin always kills stuff. It kills relationships. It kills reputations. It kills dreams. It kills the ability to do well the only thing that you've been called to do, which is to love like Jesus. And so then, then the hinge verse that is the most misinterpreted verse in fact, I've heard this verse taught a bunch of times, and this is going to sound, this might sound bad. I've never heard this verse interpreted accurately. Because he says, and if they refuse to listen, even to the assembly, treat them as you would a Gentile or tax collector. And, and Christians for ages have used this as a gotcha verse. Let me, Jesus makes really clear what he means, and then Paul's going to follow it up in case you're confused. But Jesus is really, really clear that, that if it gets to a point in this relationship where they're just like, no, I'm not following Jesus anymore, man. Stop. I don't, I don't care. I'm not, whatever. I'm gonna take my chances or I'm not gonna love like that. Or it's just, it's really, you know, I, I just, I'm not following Jesus. I'm not submitting to those values or standards. Jesus' point is, okay. Then what you need to do is shift mindset. And in that moment, you recognize, okay, I, I, I wanted to at least love you enough to bring it to your attention because I care for you, my friend. We built trust. But now if, that, if that's where you're at, you, you don't want to follow Jesus, okay, it, it's none of my business then. I'm not going to oppose any of my values on anybody else because Jesus isn't even going to impose his will on anybody else. And so at that moment, a shift happens and suddenly we treat those good friends like tax collectors and Gentiles, not in a condescending way. Do you know how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors in the New Testament? Spectacularly well. Like, hey, Zacchaeus, going to your house, man. Hey, Matthew, do you have any good wine? Because we're going to your house as well. Turn up the music. We're going to have a meal. Have a great time. There's going to be a lot of laughing. I know a lot of good jokes. I'm just assuming you're Jesus. I'm sure he's great at a party. But we're going to your house. We're hanging out. We're opening the wine. We're going to be friends. This isn't some kind of disconnection or condescension or self-righteousness that leads to lack of self-awareness. This is just going, okay, then it's none of my business. You're not a follower of Jesus. You know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna like Paul win. I'm gonna be here for you. I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna treat you well. We're gonna hang out a lot. We're gonna throw some parties. And maybe one day with the way that I love and the fact that I'm here for you and I'm never gonna leave, you're gonna come back to the place to realize that following Jesus is better because Jesus will make you better at life. And Jesus' offer of hope, life, peace, and contentment, it's only gonna be found in him. And so my hope is that through my life, you would come to the, that place. But guess what? I'm going to treat you as well as I possibly can as somebody who is loved, is made in the image of God, and I'm not any better. I may just be found. I was lost, and suddenly I got reconnected to Jesus. And this is the marching orders for every follower of Jesus in every community, every culture, and every generation. If somebody is not willing to follow Jesus, that's great. That's not your business. You can't force or impose that on anybody else. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to love the hell out of you as long as I possibly can, because that's what Jesus did. And if you're like, ah, I'm not sure, I, I completely get that. I don't know about that. Paul comes along and he was dealing, he, in fact, he gives a similar talk to Christians in Corinth. 
And you can read it for yourself. They're, I mean, they were off the rails. I mean, even in today's context, you're not even a Jesus follower, you'd be like, what's wrong with those people? And people in that culture did the same thing. Outsiders would look at them to go, what is wrong with you guys? And yet, they, they wouldn't even keep each other accountable to loving like Jesus, and yet they were pointing their fingers all over at the rest of the culture. And so Paul comes along to go, I don't know why I have to address this, but I do. And so let me just make it so clear how Jesus followers are to treat non-Jesus followers that nobody is ever gonna miss it. And yet, we did. And yet, in a lot of cases, we have. And here's what Paul says, in case Jesus' language was a little bit ambiguous. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business? Actually, I was gonna have you say that. What? Business. What business? Nanya. <laughs> what business is it of mine? to judge those. What's the word? Outside. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the Jesus movement, outside of Christianity, outside of the church? It's none of your business. This is so hard for us. This is so difficult. I told you we'd get uncomfortable. It's fine, come back next week. <laughs> That'll be uncomfortable too. This isn't, and this isn't talking about civil federal law. In fact, I, I, I've talked with, I have several friends that are, are government officials that are part of our gathering. And we've had these conversations and talks and they're incredible examples in the space that God's placed them. This is talking about the Jesus movement. And for some of you, the reason that, that you strayed away is because somewhere along the line, somebody started pointing their finger in your face and judging you around standards and values that you never subscribed to. And in the first century, because it was so fresh, this brand new movement that they got it. We're gonna encourage one another. Love like Jesus. Love your neighbor like Jesus. Go after your, your enemy like Jesus. D do whatever that you've gotta do. We're, we're gonna encourage and inspire one another in that direction. And then we're not going to expect people who are not Jesus followers to act like Jesus followers. And I'll just tell you, in our current brand of Christianity, nationally and at some level globally, it depends on where you look, we have unnecessarily put ourselves at odds with the rest of culture because we have not understood what the Great Commission was all about. It was not to threaten and to impose or to Christianize anything. It was to love like Jesus. And the problem for some of us, if I can just say it out loud, is that sounds too weak to you. And like the first century and specifically third, fourth century, the mechanisms of power and of influence sounds a little bit more like what we're used to. And yet these first century followers who were nothing like Jesus or, or, or people on the outside who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus, and Jesus liked them. And the idea that standing for truth means that the rest of the world should hate us, as you look at the ministry of Jesus, it just isn't true. We have been called to win, not a culture war. Win the hearts of people, encourage Jesus followers. Let's actually act like Jesus followers in our community. And let's stop with the obsession with ignoring our stuff and then going, and judging and expecting non-Jesus followers to act like Jesus followers. 
I mean, here's the things in terms of my life, and I'm talking specifically in terms of cultural context and the rest of the world or those outside of faith. My values that I have been given from Jesus that I try to live out in my life, those are personal to me in terms of how it relates to the rest of the world. They are not prescriptive for you. And if we, if we had maintained that in our culture, like the first century, people would feel drawn to the message and the movement of Jesus. They would not feel coerced. They would look at us and go, there's something different about those people. And I don't even agree with most of their stuff. I don't even understand some of the things they believe in. Why they spend extra time on Sunday, you could much better allocate that somewhere else. Why they give their money. But I'm telling you, man, they love in ways that it's so the antithesis of the culture. I mean, in this outrage culture, they're going and loving and speaking well of their enemies. What's wrong with those people? The, the way that they move in the direction of people in the neighborhood that nobody else likes. Who else does that? I don't, I don't believe it. I'm not sure if I buy into it, but I'm telling you, there is something about the way they act. There's something about the way they live, the way they parent their kids, the way they love their husbands and wives. You want to date them. You want to work with them. They, they produce the best work cultures you can imagine. And they hustle, but they somehow do it all in the name and the glory of Jesus. And so I, they're weird. They're crazy. I don't understand their lifestyle. But in a culture where everything feels like a dumpster fire and everybody is angry and everybody's taking sides and dividing and putting up walls, the Jesus followers are just the opposite of all of that. They love and tear down walls and move in the direction of people that nobody else will move in. And they love in a way that I have never seen. So I don't know if it's true, but I hope it is. The way they love and live and act, I hope that what they're pointing to and who they're inviting people to follow, I hope it's true. And every once in a while, they may feel guilty just because the fact your life is so different. You love so well. They would never feel condemned. Can you imagine if we had never let go of that? Can you imagine? I mean, three, 300 years in, the Roman empires abandon all of their pagan worship and all of their pagan gods because of a movement that never even intended to topple the Roman empire. They just kept inviting people to follow. You should follow. We're not better we're just found, we're not better, we're just forgiven, we're not better, we've just met somebody named Jesus and I'm telling you what he's inviting you into. I don't care if you're Roman, I don't care if you're Samaritan, I don't care if you're a Jew, I don't care if you're a woman, I don't care if you're the person on the outside, I don't care who you are, I'm telling you, it's a message for everybody. And our goal is not to overthrow Rome, our goal is not for power, our goal is not for leverage, our goal is that you would know Jesus, our goal is that we would win the world, win the nations, that through us, through our attractive personality and love and winsomeness that you would get a little glimpse into what Jesus is offering. And they just kept inviting me. You gotta come and see, you gotta come and see, you gotta come and see. And without assembling an army or raising a sword, they toppled an empire because they weren't concerned with voting machines or money or platform or power or the mechanisms of this world. They leverage something as weak as love your neighbor as yourself. And that seriousness around that defining ethic and command, you don't have to believe me, study history, it changed the world. And my prayer for us is not just, my prayer is what could God do through us? What could God do through our growing movement? 
If we took this seriously, what could he do seriously? What could he do in our city? What could he do in our community? What would happen in your neighborhood? What, heck, with some of you, what could happen in your families? What kind of multiplicative effect could take place in our cities right here and beyond? I'm telling you, that's what I'm expecting. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm believing that God can do if we take this seriously. So I just wanna end with this. Follower of Jesus, what do you need to get rid of? What are you still dragging around? What are you still trying to hide? What are you still managing? Do whatever you gotta do, surrender it, get into counseling, get rid of it, light it on fire, go tell somebody, get some accountability, do whatever you gotta do. But this thing is holding me back and I can't love me and love my neighbor and love my enemy and love God as long as I'm dragging this from season to season. What do you need to let go of? And then number two, where have been, you been looking at the rest of the culture, whole groups of people, whole nations, whole whatever, constantly threatening and judging and imposing values among people who never subscribe to the values and the movement of Jesus in the first place? And what if we just took Jesus seriously to, it seems like I'm losing control. It seems like this is the worst way to win but I haven't been called to win a culture. I've been called to win people. And so I'm gonna begin to take seriously what Jesus has invited me into. And then I'm gonna leave all the consequences to him. But I'm telling you, if we did that, you have no idea what God could do in our city and community. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would give us right now in this moment, wisdom to know what to do and courage to do it. I know this lands a thousand different directions and it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. I'm not any different than anybody else in these rooms or listening or watching. But I wanna be obedient to you. And I wanna lead a group of people who wanna be obedient to you. And so do whatever you gotta do in us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.